happy Super Bowl Sunday. Sure. It's the uh, one time a year that every uh, or tens of millions of Americans uh, celebrate the annual tradition of wishing that the Monday after the Super Bowl was a national holiday. Um, the, uh, it's been proposed several times to Congress, just for the record, um, and uh, Congress has shot it down every time. Um, it, it, Congress has a really low approval rating. I don't know why you hate Congress, but that's why I hate Congress. Um, it's because the Monday after the Super Bowl is not a national holiday. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to finish up Acts chapter 9 this morning. Acts chapter 9, uh, we're in verse 32 this morning. Acts chapter 9, beginning verse 32, it says this, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas or gazelle. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. He stayed, Peter stayed, in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for how challenging your word is at times. That it, it challenges the way that we think. It challenges the, the things that we believe. It challenges the things that we are clinging onto and holding onto. It challenges our identity. It challenges what we value. Father, I thank you that your word challenges these things and, and causes us to think uh, eternally. It causes us to lift our eyes up to gain a, a different and a better perspective and to think uh, more rightly in line with reality, more lightly, rightly in line with what you teach, uh, and r- more rightly in line with you. Father, I pray this morning that our thoughts would be conformed to you, that our, our actions would be conformed to the image of Jesus, God, that, um, that we would grow in Christ's likeness because of our time together, that we would grow to be the people and the church that you have called us to be because of our time and the word together. Let's leave this morning, Father, better and changed and different as, as we grow together because of our time in the word. We love you and we praise you and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, now, some of you uh, already know this, uh, but I played baseball when I was in high school. So, uh, today is the Super Bowl. Uh, that means that for a lot of grown men, uh, this today, uh, they're going to be experiencing the peak of their athletic achievement. 
like today. And I uh, hit my peak earlier uh, in high school uh, at baseball, unless you count one really dominant intramural football season in college. But other than that, my peak, my peak was high school baseball. That was it. That was the, the peak of my athletic achievement in life. I, uh, I trained really hard for my senior season. Like I, I really wanted to do well. I was a pitcher. Um, I really wanted to excel uh, and be, play a lot and uh, play well. And so I had a pitching coach. And uh, I started weight training and lifting weights and, and doing workouts with a, a former NFL tight end who worked at our church. And so I, I put in a lot of work. I put in a lot of effort and, uh, to get ready for my senior season. And uh, preseason came, and I did really well. I pitched well in preseason. And then uh, I led the team in ERA in the tournament season. And so I thought that I had a really good chance at locking up the closer role. So if you know baseball, for those of you that don't know baseball, the, the closer role, um, a closer is the pitcher who comes in at the end of the game uh, with the game on the line in a high-pressure situation, and he comes in and he has to shut down the other team in order to win the game. Right? In fact, if the closer pitches really well under certain conditions, in the official scorebook, he is awarded a save which means it literally says in the scorebook that this guy saved the game, right? Like that, it is a great role. Uh, it is a high pressure role. Like it's, it is a lot of pressure to walk, go up there. You have a one run lead, bases are loaded. You know, it's a lot of pressure, but it's fun. Like if you enjoy pressure, it's a great role to have. And I thought, uh, because I pitched well, because I'd put in all this work, I thought I, I had locked in that closer role. I thought I, I, had, a, I had a really good shot at it. Well, first game comes uh, during the regular season and it goes and I didn't get in. But that's fine. Uh, pitching, especially for a closer, they don't get in every game. Uh, it's kind of a situational thing. So I'm like, it's not a big deal. A few games come and go, and didn't get any of them either. And so I was, I was a little on edge. You know, maybe I don't have the closer role. Maybe I still need to fight and earn it. Um, but then a game comes, and, and the game goes into extra innings, and my coach used six different relief pitchers, and I wasn't one of them. And so then I thought, you know, I'm nowhere near this role, right? Uh, I, we keep playing, and, and games go by, and I keep not getting in. And then halfway through the season, it's a close game against one of our rivals. And my coach looks at me, and he says, Britton, go warm up. So I go run to the bullpen. I start uh, warming up, getting my arm ready to go in. And, and I look out, and I see the coach. He, he makes a mound visit, which normally means that he, he's going up to the pitcher, He's going to take the ball away from the pitcher and give it to a new pitcher. He's going to substitute him out. So the coach makes a mound visit. He walks out. He takes the ball from the pitcher on the mound. And so I'm right there at the gate. Right? I'm ready to get in. I'm all excited. This is the moment, right? Two outs, literally a one-run lead with the bases loaded. Like, this is my moment. Uh, so I'm standing at the gate, all excited. Coach points at the third baseman and says, get up here on the mound. You're going to close out the game. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I didn't get in. I didn't get in. And... And all the regular season goes by, and I didn't get in a single game, <laughs> not one game. And I, uh, I was devastated. Like, I felt like it was a travesty, right? What a gross miscarriage of justice, right? Like, I, I deserved, I, I, you know, not, maybe I didn't deserve the closer role, but I at least deserved to play, you know? Like, I, I was devastated. I felt like my world was coming to an end. Like, it was a, a tragedy. I would come home game after game after game, just heartbroken, um, and it, thinking that this is it, this is the end, this is awful. Uh, if, do you guys know the idiom, don't make a mountain out of a molehill? 
right? So don't make, don't make a big deal out of things that are not a big deal. It, with the benefit of hindsight, being a, you know, several years removed from high school, I can, I can say that me not getting to play during the regular season of baseball was not a big deal. Like it, it had no impact on my eternal standing with God. It had no impact on my standing in the eternal kingdom of God. In fact, it had no impact on me once I graduated. You know, like once, once I got out of high school, it did not affect my life at all. And so I was devastated. I felt like my world was coming to an end. But in, the, in reality, I was making a big deal out of something that, that really wasn't a big deal. I was making uh, and, and, and lifting up and, and magnifying this obstacle that at the end of the day, it was just a molehill. Some of you are going through things that are much more traumatic than my senior season of baseball. <laughs> right? You're going through things that you're not making mountains out of molehills. You, you're, you're facing actual mountains. Like Some of you are facing illnesses. You've lost a loved one. Or you're, you, you, someone has done something evil to you, and so you're living with those consequences and trying to, to sift through those consequences. Some of us are, are facing traumatic, difficult moments, low moments in life, and, and they're tough. Like you're, not, you're not blowing them out of proportion. They're actually difficult. They're actually hard. We talked about these last week uh, when, I, when I said that uh, from earlier in Acts chapter 9, and you and I are 100% dependent upon God and his people. And so in those low moments, we need to rely on God and lean on his people so they can carry us through. But I said at the end of my message last week, almost in passing, that in light of eternity, the, the struggles and the difficulties that we are facing today will ultimately seem very minuscule. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 9 this morning is essentially that idea played out in two different stories. So we're going to continue talking about these low moments, these, these difficult things that we encounter, these obstacles that we encounter in life. But this morning, what I hope that we see and what I hope that we realize is that there is something greater and something bigger than those obstacles. Look with me uh, in verse 32. The story starts uh, with Peter. Uh, verse 32, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So what's going on here, uh, just to kind of set the, the scene, is that Peter uh, is going throughout the rapidly expanding church of God, and he's going and trying to strengthen where the new churches have been planted. If you think back um, to the last few weeks in the book of Acts, we've seen that the gospel has gone forth from Jerusalem, and it has spread, and churches are being planted all through Judea and Samaria. And so the, the church is rapidly expanding. What we see is Peter going to these new churches in these new cities, and he's strengthening the believers that are there. As one of the 12 apostles, he's going about, and he's strengthening, and he's building up these churches. Uh, odds are the other 11 apostles were also doing something similar. They're just splitting up and covering more ground of this rapidly expanding uh, church of God. And so he's going, and he's strengthening these churches, and he, he arrives at a town called Lydda. And at Lydda, we're introduced to a guy named Aeneas. Look with me in verse 33. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So, so talk about an obstacle. Talk about a, a low moment in life. This guy has been dealing with paralysis for eight years in a society 
where there are no disability benefits. A society where, where he has to rely on the kindness of strangers to even survive. And we know from this story that because he's only been bedridden for eight years, this is a guy who used to not be paralyzed. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know why he's paralyzed now. But this is a guy who's not used to being stuck in a bed, being bedridden and paralyzed. And so he at one point had this freedom. At one point he could do what he wanted. But now he is stuck and confined to his bed because of his paralysis. That is a dark, low moment in this guy's life. What, what an, an obstacle. What a, what a seemingly unconquerable obstacle. The, the way that it's rendered here in this translation almost doesn't do it justice. So it says he was bedridden for eight years and he was paralyzed. Um, but the, the way it, it is rendered in the original Greek, the way it's talked about, is a, a very clear kind of cause and effect that he, he is bedridden because he's paralyzed. His paralysis has confined him to his bed. Now you may be thinking, that seems like splitting hairs. Like that seems like a really random uh, point to make, right? Maybe you're running out of content and you just want to make your sermon a little longer. We get it. Uh, or maybe, you're, uh, maybe you just want to show off the fact that he can read uh, Greek. Like, that's fine. Um, but the, the reason that I want to point this out, yes, it's obvious that the fact that he's bedridden and the fact that he's paralyzed are related, right? It's pretty obvious to us that those two are related. But, but the reason I want to point out the cause and effect relationship there is because for Aeneas, for eight years, his paralysis has existed as this existential threat, this mountain of an obstacle that has come against him. And he has magnified in his mind this paralysis because this paralysis has power over him. And he's lifted it up in his mind, and he, this paralysis has robbed him of his freedom. It has stolen his identity. It has chained him to his bed. This obstacle, this paralysis, is magnified and lifted up as this existential threat for Aeneas. Because when you and I face obstacles, we do the same thing. We don't face obstacles abstractly. We don't think about obstacles in outside the context of emotion. When you and I have things that go against us, when you and I face low moments in our lives, we magnify those moments and, and treat them like entities that are coming against us, like things that have power over us and threaten to destroy us. Think about if you have an illness, you're sick, then the fact that you're sick is always at the forefront of your mind, and that illness seems to be right there, just ready to take things away from you. It's always right there at the front of your mind is this obstacle, this existential threat that has power over you. Think about if you're, you're struggling financially. That number in your bank account is always right there in front of you as this obstacle, the future bills that you're going to have to pay, the things that you're going to have to take care of, wondering how you're going to get by is always right there at the front of your mind as this existential threat just hovering over you, hanging over you, waiting to destroy you. If somebody has done something evil to you and you are working through the consequences, stuck with the consequences of their choices, sifting through what it is that they have done to you, and you are stuck with that trauma, it hangs over you like an anvil just waiting to crush the joy and the life out of you. When you and I face obstacles, we don't 
treat them as a simple cause and effect. We don't treat them abstractly. We, we view them with all of the emotions that we have in our life, and we lift those things up and keep them at the forefront of our mind and view them and face them as this existential threat that will destroy us, as this thing that has power that will take things away from us, as this thing that defines us. Aeneas, for eight years, lived in the shadow of that mountain of an obstacle. For eight years, his paralysis robbed him of his freedom. It stole his identity, and it chained him to his bed. And then he met Peter. Look at me in verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Notice the wording that Peter uses there. Now, I want to be, be clear, uh, first of all, that if you're not one of the original 12 disciples, please don't go say this sentence to someone who's paralyzed. Right? If you're not one of the original 12 apostles, uh, shouting this at someone who's paralyzed is, is probably not a good idea. Right? At, at worst case scenario, probably, you're just really rude, and you're going to look really dumb when they don't get up. Right? Like, that's uh, so don't think, uh, you know, maybe God can perform a miracle through you. He's perfectly capable of doing that. I don't want to discredit that at all. Um, but don't think Peter used this sentence, so I can use this sentence, <laughs> and, then, and it's going to work. And don't just shout it <laughs> at people. Um, so people do that. So I just want to be clear. Uh, nobody in here should do that. Um, but notice the wording that uh, Peter uses. And he is, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. So according to Peter, Jesus Christ has already healed Aeneas. It is by the power of Jesus that Aeneas is able to rise. Notice Peter isn't saying, hey, I'm going to heal you. you. Notice Peter isn't saying that it's by his power that Aeneas is going to get up. Peter doesn't have the ability to, to fix a paralyzed man. And notice, it's not by Aeneas' good works and his, his good character and his good heart that he's going to get healed. It is only by the power of Jesus that Aeneas is going to get up. It is only by the power of Jesus that his paralysis is going to get fixed. And Peter is just sharing the good news. All Peter is is sharing the great news that there's healing for Aeneas. So he goes up to Aeneas and he says, hey, that obstacle that has been hanging over you for eight years, Jesus is taking care of it. This, this thing that has hung over you with such power, to, the thing that robbed you of your freedom and, and threatened to steal your life and chain you to your bed, Jesus has handled it. Like what great news for Aeneas. What, what freedom for him, and look with me in the second part of verse 34, and immediately he rose. For eight years he was chained to his bed by paralysis. For eight years he faced this obstacle. For eight years he endured a low point in his life, and he could now talk about it in the past tense. He got up and he walked. By the power of Jesus, the, the power of God through Peter healed Aeneas and overcame his obstacle. Well, as big of an obstacle as paralysis is, there's at least one more thing in this world that is an even bigger obstacle. 
as big of a problem as paralysis is, there's one more thing in this world that seems way more problematic than that. Skip down with me to verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. So, so down in Joppa, which is the next town over, uh, there's a lady there who is, is a, the picture-perfect follower of Jesus. Right, she's coming to place her faith in God, and, and what we see in this is that she is, she is generous, she's loving, she's caring. We find out later in the text she, is, she has made tunics and, and put all her work and her resources into clothing people that needed clothing. What a, what a picture-perfect follower of Jesus. She is meeting people's needs. She's engaging the law. She's, she's living for eternity today, right? This is someone who, who clearly is following Jesus, the picture-perfect disciple of God. But notice what happens to her in verse 37. In those days, she became ill. And she died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him urging him, please come to us without delay. So this faithful follower of Jesus, this, this dedicated disciple, died. If you need any more proof that sometimes bad things happen to you due to no fault of your own, there it is. Like she clearly wasn't being punished by God for anything. She wasn't suffering the consequences of her bad decisions. She just she she was a, a faithful follower of Jesus. She was living exactly how you would want someone to live the, the, their Christian life. But as she interacted with a world that is broken, as she interacted with a world that is marred by sin, as she interacted with a world that is has pain and hurt and death, she succumbed to illness and she died. You and I, as we interact with this world, are going to experience pain. We're going to experience hard times. The, the prosperity gospel that says that if you follow Jesus, everything in your life is going to go well and you'll never experience any obstacles is a false gospel that is out of touch with reality. We will face hard times. We will have low moments. And it may be due to no fault of our own because we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that is hurting. We live in a world full of broken, hurting people because we live in a world with sin. And sin always destroys. Sin always tears down. It never helps. It never builds. It never heals. It always destroys. And the, the greatest gift that sin has ever given the world is death. Because there's sin in the world, there is illness, there is pain, there is sorrow, there is heartbreak, there is trauma, and there is death. And if there's any obstacle in the world that warrants us treating it like, a, like an immovable mountain, it's death. If there's any obstacle in the world that warrants us viewing it as this existential threat that will take everything from us, it's the finality of death. Tabitha, as a faithful follower of Jesus, still succumbed to an illness, and she died. And death robbed Tabitha of her continued existence, her life in this world. Death 
robbed. Uh, she, you know, Tabitha wasn't paralyzed in that she was confined to a bed. Like she died, and, and that death robbed her of everything in this life. And not only that, but her death robbed the rest of the church of a faithful friend and a caregiver. We face tough, difficult things in our lives, and one of the greatest obstacles we will ever face is death. Disciples send to Peter, and they bring Peter in. In verse 39, it says, Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down, and prayed. So what we see is that when Peter gets to Joppa, when he finally arrives, he comes face to face with a church that is mourning. He comes face to face with their grief and their pain. He recognizes just how much Tabitha meant to them, and he sees the heartbreak and the, and the pain that the church is going through. The Bible never minimizes the difficult things that we go through in our life. If you hear me say this, uh, that, that we need to have this eternal perspective and that the things that we go through are going to seem minuscule, those things are true, but the Bible never minimizes the pain in the moment. Like the pain that we feel is very real. The trauma that we go through are very real. We go through difficult, hurting, broken times in our lives. These low moments where the, the obstacles seem like mountains. The Bible never minimizes that. And Peter comes face to face with that as he sees a church that's mourning the loss of their friend. Peter says, uh, Peter puts them all outside. He kneels down. And he prays. Notice again that Peter doesn't position himself as some guy that is in the business of healing paralyzed men and resurrecting deceased women. Like Peter recognizes the limits of his own power. He knows that there's nothing he can do to bring Tabitha back to life. There's nothing in his power that will enable him to fix this. So he kneels down and he asks God for a miracle. He prays that the power of Jesus would overcome an obstacle once again. Notice with me at the second half of verse 40. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. The power of Jesus overcame the obstacle of death. The worst obstacle in the world, the, the one that seems to be the most powerful, the one that seems to have the greatest sway over, the, over us, the greatest existential threat that we face, the power of Jesus overcame it. The power of Christ was able to overcome even death for Tabitha. How do we respond to these stories? What is the proper response? Most of us think are tempted to hear these stories, and immediately we jump to a thought that says, Jesus, me next. Right? You, you, healed, uh, you healed Aeneas' paralysis. You, you resurrected Tabitha. You, you took care of their obstacles. Do me. Do me. Right? God, rescue me from my illness. God, fix the, the broken, hurting things that are happening to me. Fix the injustice that is happening to me. God, fix my financial situation. 
And we read these stories about Jesus, oh, the power of Jesus overcoming obstacles, and we immediately jump to, do me, do me, like me next. And I don't think those are necessarily bad prayers. Paul had a thorn in his side, some, some physical pr- issue, and he prayed to the Lord three times to remove it. So I don't think those are necessarily bad prayers to ask God to save us from these obstacles that we face, to, to rescue us from them. There aren't necessarily bad prayers, but there's a better response to these stories. And I know there's a better response to these stories because the Bible records the response to both of these stories. Look with me in verse 35. When Peter healed Aeneas, verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Look with me in verse 42. After, after Jesus resurrected Tabitha, it says in verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. The proper response to these stories is to put your trust in Jesus. It's not necessarily to say, Jesus, me next. The proper response to these stories is to recognize that Jesus has power over the obstacles that we face and to place our trust in him. This is the main idea. This is what I want us to get out of the text this morning. Jesus is more powerful than life's greatest obstacles. So trust in him. Everything that comes against you, there's not a single thing that can come against you that Jesus isn't more powerful than. So place your trust and your faith in him. The thing is, we magnify what we stress over. We, we lift up and raise up in our minds the thing that give us anxiety, these obstacles that come against us, and we, we magnify them and treat them like this huge existential threat that's going to ruin everything for us. Like when we have an illness, we dwell on the fact that we're sick, when we uh, are, are uh, facing financial problems, we dwell on that bank account number, we stress over and magnify the obstacles that come against us. But the reality is that there's nothing that can come against us that Jesus isn't more powerful than. I'm not saying that you're making a mountain out of a molehill, right? I'm not saying that you are, you are treating something as a big deal that isn't that big of a deal. You may be going th- through something really hard. You may be facing an actual mountain, but we serve a God who is bigger than the mountains. So when we focus on the, the, the pain, when we focus on the objects that come against us, when we focus on the the threats against us, when we focus on those things and we magnify those things, we're focusing on the wrong thing. Because Jesus is more powerful than those things. Now by that, I don't necessarily mean that if you ask nicely, Jesus is going to take away whatever it is that you're going through. We don't have time this morning to unpack uh, exactly unpack exactly why it seems like at some moments Jesus answers our prayers for, for rescue and at some times it seems like he doesn't. But that's, that's not the point of this passage. What we need to do, when we, when we face obstacles, when we, when we have low moments in lives, when we are facing these mountains that come against us, what we need to do is we need to zoom out and get a view of eternity. A 10,000-foot view of a 10,000-foot view. We zoom out, and when we do that, when we view eternity, what we realize 
is that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then you have the hope of eternal life. The Bible says you have been adopted into the family of God. The Bible says that you have been granted citizenship in the eternal kingdom of God. And so when you get a view of eternity, if you have placed your faith in Jesus by his power, by his death, and his resurrection, then you have entered into a relationship with God that nobody can take away from you. You have experienced the love of God, and nobody can remove you from that. And you will forever experience eternal life in the family and the presence of God. And nothing can change that. So when we zoom back in to the obstacle that we face today, when we zoom back in to our illness, we recognize that, yeah, this illness is a problem. It, it may affect our life. It may take away uh, and debilitate or even kill us, and it, it may do those things, but at the end of the day, we don't need to worry or stress about it because nothing the illness does to me can change the fact that I'm a part of the eternal family of God. When we zoom back in and we say, yeah, my financial situation is a problem. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. I don't know how it's going to work out. And, you know, I'm thinking about future bills and things. I don't, I don't know how it's going to work. And it's going to affect my life. But we say we don't have to worry and stress about it because there's nothing financially that can come against us that's going to change the fact that we are citizens of the eternal kingdom of God. We zoom back in and we, we are, are in the midst of our pain and hurt that somebody else has caused us and we are, we are stuck with the consequences of their wicked actions and we are dealing with all of that trauma and dealing with all of that pain. We recognize, yes, this is wrong, this is evil, this is, it is, uh, it's not fair, it's not right that I have to go through this and, and I'm going to have to, to deal with this. We don't have to worry and stress about it because as evil as they are, as, as painful as what they did to us might be, nothing they can do can remove you from the love of God. Nothing they can do can change the fact that you are part of his eternal family and will experience eternal life forever. When we zoom out and get a view of eternity, we recognize that Jesus is more powerful than anything that can come against us. And that gives us hope and joy when we zoom back in to recognize that my problem, this mountain that I'm facing is a problem, but Jesus is bigger than it, and nothing that I face is ever going to change the fact that I'm part of the family of God who will experience eternal life. Some of you this morning do not have that hope to fall back on. Some of you this morning are not part of the family of God. Some of you this morning are not citizens of the eternal kingdom of God. You do not have eternal life in Jesus because you've never trusted in Christ. You've never turned to him and believed that he has the power and the ability to rescue you and to save you. And so you don't have the hope to fall back on. For you, the mountain is the biggest thing in your life. And you do not have a higher hope. This morning, what I want to give you the opportunity to do is to receive and experience a greater hope. What I want to give you the opportunity to do is to experience eternal life in Jesus. To have the hope of eternal life and the, the fact that you, 
you are adopted into his family. So in just a moment, we're going to sing. As we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. And what I want to invite you to do, if, that, if that's you and you, you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, and you do not have that hope, what I want to invite you to do is to come talk to me. I'd love to pray with you and then talk with you after the service. I know it might seem awkward to come up here while everybody's singing, but let me tell you that that does not compare to the hope that you'll have with eternal life in Jesus. So as we sing, I'll be standing right here. If that's you, you want to place your faith in Jesus, turn your life over to him, I invite you to come talk with me. Everybody else, you have that hope. Rest in that hope. Lean on that hope. Don't let the mountains that you face, the, the low moments in your life, the obstacles that come against you, don't let them overwhelm you. Because none of those things define you. None of those things can take away something that's of any value anyways. Because ultimately, you have the hope of eternal life in Jesus. Adoption into the family of God. Citizenship in his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we place our hope and our trust in you. We believe in the power of Jesus to, to rescue us, to, to set us free from sin and death. We trust in Jesus to be more powerful than anything that comes against us. We recognize that there's nothing in this world that will ever change the fact that we are children of God, that we are, we are part of your family, that we are part of your eternal kingdom. So God, I pray that we would rest in that, that we would rejoice in that, and that that would be at the forefront of our minds every second of every day. That we would have confidence in the power of Jesus. Father, I pray if there's anybody here that does not have that hope, I pray, Father, they would experience that hope this morning, that they would enter into eternal life with you for the very first time. Father, I pray that, that nobody would walk out of those doors without that hope of eternal life. We love you. We praise you. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.